it's why, you know, no matter what, we're always drawn together. It's uh, very few people can really live that hermit lifestyle. And you'll always find that you need other people around you for this or that. And, and I think the pandemic showed us just how much we truly do crave human inter interaction. Um, yeah, definitely. All those definitely. people who, who say they're antisocial really, I think also many of them found that when they truly had to be antisocial, they weren't as antisocial as they always yeah. thought they were. Hello and welcome to Tom Meets Interesting People. This is the podcast where I'll meet everybody from nuclear engineers to voice actors and talk about their life, their work and what they are passionate about. And my guest today is Robert Walker, who is the host of the Dungeons, Dragons and Psychology podcast, or basically just me from another universe really at this point. He is the author of Session Zero. Uh, which is the uh, DMG to writing great campaigns in any system, and the NPC Compendium, which are tools for the organized DM. And he likes to use his psychology education in conjunction with his deep passion for storytelling to create immersive campaigns. Um, Robert, good morning. It is far, far too early to be doing this. It is a bit but... early for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it is just, I cannot. Uh, let's kick off um, with, with the bulk of the questions. How did you get into studying psychology? Well, uh, it was always sort of a passion of mine from high school, uh, required psychology course way back in the day and uh, right out of high school I jumped into college and thought I was going to go ahead and be a clinical psychologist um, but as a young teenager I was definitely unprepared for college um, I was a lot more interested in relationships and trying to make money and just having fun uh, so yeah. I spent a couple years of getting mediocre grades but not really paying attention and ended up just dropping out so after that uh just decided to focus on work career and 17 years later the pandemic hit and decided you know what i think i'm finally mature enough to go back to college uh, but clinical psychology really didn't make sense for me anymore i have already established a pretty successful career in the restaurant industry um, as a director of operations. And so I still wanted to do something psychology related. I switched my major to industrial and organizational psychology, which is essentially business psychology, human resources, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I've been, been uh, chasing that dream ever since and being able to keep up with it now that I know how to, you know, run a schedule and things like that. Oh goodness, yeah, schedules are just, I, I can do them when I was undergrad. Um, when I go to master's, I'm not going to be able to do them um either um so was there like a specific moment where you were like I want to go back to college um I want to go get my master's or was it something that just built up over time well it had always sort of been one of my bucket list dreams um really the dream was I eventually wanted to get a PhD um yeah but I was sitting there with you know a post-culinary certificate uh in culinary arts and like two years worth of credits towards a psychology degree. And, uh, just really the push to get me to go back was my wife decided to go to college, um, yeah. and get her associate's degree. And while she was doing it and I was watching her be successful, I just kind of got this thought, you know, she's working full time. She's still raising a child with me, like, and she's doing it very successfully. So I thought it was something I could probably finally handle. And uh, yeah. so I decided to take the plunge. We took some classes that we could together and um, really kind of supported each other through the whole process. And um, basically, she was able to get her associates at the same time I was able to finish my bachelor's degree. We both had about two years of work to do. So uh, it kind of went hand in hand and worked really well together. Yeah, the couple that studies together stays together. Yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> maybe that's the uh, maybe that's the new phrase that we will just um, push. But <laughs> something that I'm 
a big fan of is people taking like alternative routes into education. Mm-hmm. Like I was a mature student, you're a mature student as well. I don't know what the phrasing is over in the states. Uh, mature sounds very sort of like you are old. Yeah, and- it's true. Now they call us non-traditional students over here when when you reach a certain age threshold. So <laughs> I, I would consider myself pretty traditional, though I just a bit older. Yeah, does that make us sound like nouveau rich? Like, yes, we are. We are the non-traditional students. Yeah, kind of does. <laughs> So, of course, your um, the reason why we, we connected is uh, because I saw the name of your podcast and I was just like, oh, my God, I want to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and your podcast is all about Dungeons, Dragons and psychology. So why don't you give us um, a brief rundown and, and t- tell our listeners all about it? It really is a combination of the two things that I'm sort of most passionate about in life. Um, role-playing games since I was 15 years old I've been playing so I've been essentially dungeon mastering for goodness 25 years now Um, Mm -hmm. and again psychology is a lifelong long passion of mine as well so I wanted like everybody else during the pandemic and the slowdown and and the you know time where we found ourselves actually having a little bit of extra time on our hands I wanted to give something back to a community that's given me so much. Um, And there really wasn't a lot out there that merged the idea of Dungeons and Dragons and psychology, even though they're so linked together. I mean, role play and therapy go hand in hand. Almost every group therapy session or family counseling um, therapist involves some sort of role play into their into their uh, sessions and every game session. Also the foundations of it are on storytelling and human interaction and communication and all these things that are such a big part of psychology. So I wanted to create something where dungeon masters could understand the psychological aspects of what it was about their games that made them interesting and ways that they could engage their players more by understanding the fundamentals of human psychology. And I think a lot of people can sort of attest to that, even without the academic knowledge. D&D is very much sort of like, it is... I'm always careful about describing D&D as a therapy, but it's definitely Mm -hmm. got therapeutic properties. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with that. I've, I've talked to mental health therapists on my show, I've talked to other people who just use D&D as sort of their reset button every week or their therapeutic, you know, session just for their own depression or all sorts of other things. But it's just one of those things that even if you don't think of it as like this is therapy, you're right, it is therapeutic because there is something about just gathering around the table with people you enjoy spending time with, having laughs and getting something accomplished so you have like the whole productivity mindset that's happening with it and you have the entire just human endorphins that are being released by laughter and fun and togetherness with people you like and i'm glad you brought up togetherness uh because on a previous episode uh with dr farini we talked something kind of similar but using spaces as opposed to um using the role-playing game and we sort of talked about how in, let's say, football or soccer for, for, for the Americans, um, it's football. It is football. We <laughs> use a foot and it's a ball. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in football, in music, we have that shared experience with each other. We have that connection. And like you said, that togetherness. And it's just D&D. It's just the sort of nerdy side of that maybe mm-hmm. well and it's, it is really interesting um because there's been such a shift really in the last five five to ten years where mm-hmm. nerd culture has sort of evolved into just modern culture and all yeah. things nerdy have sort of become what's cool in pop culture and and i think watching that shift and seeing something that used to be for me like the thing you don't talk about with other people because they just point and laugh at you 
has now become sort of that great big, you know, there's TV shows based on it. The 5e has, has, uh, recruited just a huge number of fans and followers and the amount of people who are coming to the game for the first time is just incredible. I mean, it's now it's hard to find somebody who you mentioned D&D or you, you know, ha- like people just see the name of my podcast and they're like, oh my God, I've, I've played D&D. That's so cool. And I, now it's just, it's hard to find someone who isn't interested in the game either because of exposure to to pop culture and media or just the fact that nerddom has sort of become the cool thing to do now you just hit the nail on the head there like 5e has despite its flaws and obviously it's going to get its criticism is is the biggest system out there we can't mm-hmm. deny it it has brought so many people in and then we've also the mention 20 building up mm-hmm. and critical role and the legend of fox machina coming out on amazon oh yeah yeah we are definitely seeing a cultural shift which is so cool it is um yeah and just as psychologists and uh, i think the sociologist i had on a few weeks ago as well would be very very interested in that and yeah it is interesting how you talk about um geek culture becoming sort of mainstream because there is now lots of publications about it and you saw Mm -hmm. me as i desperately muted my microphone as i tried to grab a book just to be like look at the book robert uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah now there are literally counseling and therapeutic guides for integrating geek culture not just D, but also stuff along the lines of marvel and video games mm-hmm. into the therapeutic practice yes oh absolutely i mean there's entire courses at certain universities that are based on um role-playing games as part of the psychology program and uh I think that's, I think it's amazing because it's something I think all, you know, young nerds knew. Definitely, we knew it growing up that this was like our safe space. It was our happy place. It was the thing you look forward to all week. And I've said many times, like, I've, I've often found, you know, more relief and more um, sort of depression relieving uh, moments from my weekly D&D games than I was getting back in my weekly counseling sessions when I was going, you know, all the time. So it definitely has that so many things that we need as, as human beings, sometimes that we're lacking. Um, We're very social creatures and the opportunity to have a weekly time where we can interact socially and not just that, but we're accomplishing goals. And there's something about the completion of goals and doing it together as a group that really satisfies sort of our core desires and instincts. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like if you, if you boil it down, humans want to cooperate. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to work together, don't we? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's why, you know, no matter what, we're always drawn together. It's um, very few people can really live that hermit lifestyle. And you'll always find that you need other people around you for this or that. And, and I think the pandemic showed us just how much we truly do crave human inter- interaction. Um, yeah, definitely. All those definitely. people who, and... who say they're antisocial really, I think also many of them found that when they truly had to be antisocial, they weren't as antisocial as they always yeah. thought they were. Yeah. I think the pandemic definitely taught us so much about kind of like ourselves and um, it was this huge, it still is happening now, mm-hmm. this huge societal and cultural shift. Um, like we could easily go just segue off into workplace um, and industrial psychology, which I know I could just let you take the mic. And if you want to do that, <laughs> just go ahead. Um, but I will take your challenge of being a complete hermit because I am, and I will just, I, I like my hermit mm-hmm. lifestyle. <laughs> Let's jump into your podcast a little bit now as well. And we, we kind of hinted at it here, but I want to pick up on one episode. I can't remember the episode number. Um, but you talked about the psychology of character death. Yes. Um, it's a bonus and... episode. I believe it's right between episode eight and episode nine. Yeah. And I utterly adored that episode. And I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up your ass. Um, <laughs> but what you what you highlighted in that, um, or at least what I got out of it, uh, was the use of Dungeons & Dragons in a therapeutic environment. Mm-hmm. And 
one thing that I'm really fascinated about, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is how we can use not just D&D, but also other media that we watch, let's say sort of Marvel mm-hmm. or kind of any kind of TV show, insert whatever you're a fan of here. And you could point to an experience that somebody is having in mm-hmm. that episode and take that into the therapeutic environment and say, this is the exact thing I'm feeling. And then both you and a the therapist are on the same page with that. What's your perspective on my ramblings? Well, I mean, you you bring up a very good point, and you're right. Um, it is sort of taking it on yourself. So most gamers are familiar with a concept that is called the willful suspension of disbelief, or often we yeah. just refer to it as the suspension of disbelief. But that entire concept essentially is stating that for a time, you are suspending the things in your mind that disbelieve something from being true. You know, when you're watching a film and you allow yourself to become emotional from the characters who are involved in the film, you are choosing to accept that what is happening to them is really happening to them, even though it's a fictional story. It's the same thing in role-playing. You are suspending your disbelief of this is a fantasy game, and you are accepting the fact for a brief time that the characters that you are playing and interacting with are real characters. Their experiences are real for that short amount of time. So when an experience like a character death takes place, you will have a micro version of the same sort of grieving process that you go through in real life when a real death occurs. Now, obviously it's not as profound and because it is a suspension of your disbelief, you always have the ability to resume your disbelief Mm -hmm. and step right back out of that. But the beauty of having that ability to suspend our disbelief means that we can experience very difficult things in a safe and secure environment. So it's sort of like being able to practice real life, which is what's so great about role-playing games. Yes, they're fantasy. Yes, these characters don't exist. We're, We're giving them life by playing them. But we're also practicing handling difficult situations in our real life through those Mm -hmm. suspended disbelief moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's social rehearsal. And um, it is like you said, in having those experiences in that safe space. And I think also having that control over the environment and also the pacing of what happens. So you can go through them all together. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you're you're sharing that experience. Um, so these people who who you're interacting with, your friends who are the other characters, they just become more important to you. They they draw closer to you um, because you've experienced all these difficult things together, and you you usually come out triumphant. Sometimes you come out, you know, in epic TPK failures, but you still learn something together through that. Right? You learn like, well, maybe in the future we don't all charge a hundred soldiers uh by ourselves you know we 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 learn strategy and things like that but uh it's i think for me the longest lasting friendships in my life are all ones that i've developed around the D table um yeah. you know the one of my closest friends is the person i very first started playing with 25 years ago and we still see each other every week and game together every week so yeah now I can attest to that. Like the the people I am closest to are the people that I play D anD D and other tabletop role playing games on on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really are, and yeah, we kind of we sort of build those friendships not just between ourselves, but I think also between our characters in a weird way. Yeah. No, I I think it's true. Um, in one of my recent episodes, a friend of mine was on, and he was talking about a game we had played where. Uh, he was trying to save the elven people and uh, he mentioned how important all of those characters in the game were to him personally. Um, like he felt that same level of care and concern and need to protect as he would in real life. And uh, that's just another example to me of just how we are practicing real life. You can learn to have empathy. You can learn to have concern mm-hmm. and care and love for all of these uh, individuals that are real for you in the time that you're interacting with them. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's talk about your own games now. 
and um let's talk about you as a dm because i i, I could talk about the science and the psychology of dnd all day but not not everyone is here to um <laughs> listen to us geek out so we're just going to geek out in a different way sure <laughs> um now so as a dm you've been asked this question before uh, so I already know the answer. Um, you always <laughs> ask this question on how to be a better DM podcast. Uh, but what class would your DM self be? Oh, so I think my personal class is got to be a bard just because I'm a performer as a DM. I love to do yeah. voices. I, you know, I love to play all these roles and, and do all this acting. And it really is. It's just like, it's an extension of, you know, high school drama and, you know, early on, everybody kind of has that thought of, oh, maybe I'll be famous by being an actor or something like that. <laughs> um, but it is sort of just that that uh, performance aspect of it that I love so much. Um, so I would definitely call myself a bard. Although, depending on the character I'm playing, I do like to embody many different roles. You know, yeah. I, I do try to immerse myself in whatever it is that I'm playing, especially those important characters. Villains are one of those things that, you know, I don't know if it's it's crazy to say this, but I, I really do try and invest myself into the mind of the villain because I, yeah. I want my villains to be very believable. Um, yeah. And if they're just like they want to destroy the world because they want to destroy the world, then I don't think that they're very believable. That's that's one that always gets me if I'm watching a show or something like that. And there's just not a real good motivation other than I'm bad. Um, yeah. That never, I, I can't bite that. I need something that's like, how did you get here? What what story makes sense for you to actually be the way you are? Mm -hmm. And that makes it more fun as well, doesn't it? Because it's it, it then becomes more satisfying for the players but you also get more nuance for your villains rather than just being ah i'm taking over the world it's yeah. like i actually have a reason for doing this when it comes time for that final confrontation between the player characters and the big bad evil guy i want the characters to struggle with the idea of is just swinging the sword and destroying them really the right way to deal with this person is there a better yeah. way is there a reformation yeah. that can take place? Is is there some sort of, you know, other way that we could approach this other than just hack and slash? Yeah, definitely. And talking of big bads, am I right in thinking that one of your players was the big bad of a whole campaign? No, that is absolutely correct. Um, that was, uh, it was one of those moments when the reveal came out I had asked this player to play the big bad evil guy along with the rest of the party and they had no idea that this character who was playing alongside them was the big bad evil guy. And yeah. when it finally revealed, it was just one of those moments that like I had been setting this up for around a year. He had been carefully playing this and all of the pieces fell into place. I've got goosebumps on my arms like visceral reactions are going on you know like and and then the big event happens the other players leave the house i start getting text messages from them right away like you're an asshole what the hell were you <laughs> why would you do something like that to us and and you know here we are 10 15 years later from that moment and uh they're still talking about this game they've mentioned you know they hated me that night but yeah to this to this day now it's probably one of the most memorable and most incredible moments that they were ever a part of and uh, things like that are are pretty cool when you can pull something just massive off plot twists yeah. i love but really a big plot twist like that was something that just blew everybody away were there like any moments where the players nearly figured it out and like the whole cover was blown you know, the, the elements were there, the clues were there, but I think they were, they were set up carefully enough that nobody really understood it until the reveal happened and then they looked backwards. And I think that's, that's sort of the best sort of mystery is the ones that you, you don't have enough clues to really make the connection until the connection's made, but then you can look yeah. back and see that they were there the whole time. 
Um, so I never had the sense that they were close to figuring it out because there was just enough pieces that they couldn't see any of the picture of the puzzle. But once it happened, they could look at all those pieces and say, holy crap, this all fits together. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to like mysteries and big reveals, kind of like when you do look back, you're like, oh, wait, yeah, I get that connection. And mm -hmm. it is it is an absolute fine art to uh, to do it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's um, mysteries are, are tough. Like as a dungeon master, I've run a couple of games that were really centered around mysteries and they're very, very hard to pull off, especially if you're writing your own because, you know, an author can can write it out in a story and then they can go back over and look over their their uh, manuscript and say, okay, no, there's too much information there or not enough information to make it fit. But you only really get one shot when you're DMing. Yeah. And you're either going to get to the point that you planned for the reveal to happen, or you're going to give them a little too much. So they're going to figure it out too early. Not enough. They're not going to understand the connection when it's finally made. So it, it is a very difficult task. And I've had a, a very successful two attempts at it and a couple that didn't work out so well. And like, you got to do those DM backflips as well. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we're, we're both familiar with the, um, <clears throat> oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God feeling of <laughs> DMing. Um, but with, with your, uh, was it 35 years? You said 25 years? 25 years, playing, yeah. 25 years you've been playing uh, playing D&D. You're more than qualified to write uh, the DMG, to writing great campaigns in any system. Would you introduce the book? Uh, for us. Yeah, so um, the book came before the podcast and it was one of those things. I'm. It's kind of hard to explain how it happened because I sort of just woke up one morning and said, I need to leave something for this world that has given so much to me. And I've been listening to a lot of D&D podcasts and I've been hearing other DMs talk about things and, and just think to myself, you know, I really think it's a, it's simpler than people are making it out to be, um, because if if you get my book, if you look through the book, each chapter is broken down into pretty small chunks. Everything's very understandable, and I try and make everything in just like easy enough to understand in a few paragraphs and then a few bullet points at the end. And I want it to be very very accessible for anybody to pick up and be like, oh, here's some tricks I can use today. Like if you picked up the book, read a chapter, you could take the bullet points at the end and say, oh, yeah, I can do these four things or these five things in my game today and make it a better game. And so that was the whole point behind the book is I wanted to go through my entire process of how do I start coming up with an idea for a campaign to how do I get to ending that campaign in very, very easy to understand bullet points so that somebody else could pick it up after my 25 years of experience and say, oh yeah, those are some great ideas. I can do that in my game. It's not hard for me to do and I can make a better game. And I think there is, I mean, we're living in a great age where you can get, if you Google any kind of answer or any kind of question for D&D, you can get an answer and you can get a lot of answers mm -hmm. and that ends up with a lot of noise. But what you've produced here is kind of like a resource which just cuts out that noise mm -hmm. and just goes... Here's some things to help you. Yeah, that's and that's exactly what it is. It's just like my take on on each of these topics and then bullet points at the end that here's the simple things you can do right now to do this, to add it to your game, to add more cinematic feel, to add more character immersion, to um, yeah. start writing your campaign, to figure out who your big, big bad evil guy is, how to flush, like just all these different important things that are involved in a game but just making them very accessible and very easy to do for for a new dm or an experienced dm yeah and um because i'm cheap um <laughs> as everyone just knows me knows that i'm cheap if there was one lesson from the book that you could just scream at our readers or at our listeners i should say what would that lesson be yeah, I think probably one of the most important things um, in there is is to the idea of building backwards. So I like, you know, like J.K. Rowling did when she wrote Harry Potter, like so many great authors have done, 
the first thing that they figure out before they start writing page one is what happens at the end. Um, yeah. And you don't have to, you don't have to like have a whole detailed idea, but for me, like in the elf game where my friend was talking about becoming so close to those characters, I knew the end game was going to be them requiring a major sacrifice of themselves to save the elven people. That's, yeah. that's all I'm talking about. That's the framework you need. So I know the destination and then I figure out the starting point. So you get those two points, destination and starting point. Where do we begin? Where do we end? And then from there, you're like the designated driver for your friends who are taking a road trip. They get to decide on all the places they want to stop and do their sightseeing, which turns they want to take. You just know that I eventually have to get them somehow to the destination at the end of the roadmap. And that's yeah. sort of your job as DM is, is I want them to not feel like they are on these tight railroads and they can't stop or deviate or do anything that they want to do because that, you know, rail, rail railroading is not really a very fun way to play D and D when you feel like your choices don't actually matter, but it can be guided. You know, you can be the driver. You can eventually kind of be like, okay guys, well now we're going to, now we're going to go this way. We're going to turn left this time. Okay. Oh, you want to stop and see the, you want to stop and see the largest ball of yarn in the world. Okay. We'll stop there and we'll visit that for a little bit. And then we're going to get back on our road back to our destination. But yeah, so it's just kind of that, just come up with where you want to end, figure out how you're starting and then let them guide you as you drive them to the destination. And I've kind of started doing that as well in kind of my own games. And that's taken a lot of the stress off my personal DMing. Um, and I've, I've, I've ended up doing it in kind of like even a smaller scale now yes. by going, I want the session to end over here uh somewhere because i find that gives me like you like you mentioned there with authors that gives me a kind of goal a structure and then i can think okay we can get from here to here mm -hmm. and along the way uh my players read cats want to go and find the big ball of yarn yep like yeah we could go do that but then i'll shoot you along yeah uh, and <laughs> exactly the i mean the way you said it doing it on a smaller scale is exactly right you want to do this on both a macro and a micro scale um, yeah. So you do it for your overall campaign. That's what you do before you sit down for session, your session zeros, you figure out those two points, but then when you know, okay, so here's our first adventure within that, you do the same thing. How does this first adventure end? Where are they starting? Well, usually, you know, you're starting where we last left our party, you know, um, but it's the same concept. You're still taking that. Where do I want this to go? Here's where we're starting and let's let them make the decisions what we're seeing along the way today. But I still know by the end of the session, if I can, I want them to get to this point. And along the way, of course, you're going to meet different people, different NPCs, uh, which is where your other book comes in incredibly handy. Uh, the mm -hmm. NPC uh, compendium. Um, so briefly, um, tell us about it and why, why I should, Go out and buy it, which I've already done. But why should why should other people go out and buy it? <laughs> so the the NPC compendium, um, as you mentioned, it's tools for the organized DM. It's not necessarily a book. It's it's a it's a tool for organizing as a DM. It inside the book, there's a hundred different pages that are all um, indexable um, in your table of contents, and each page is an NPC information sheet, so to speak. It has things on yeah. there like what voice do they speak in? Where are they found? Are they an enemy or an ally of the party? Do they have other motivations? Um, it has uh, blocks for simple stats so that if your players decide that this is the bartender they want to start a fight with, uh, you know, you have enough information in there that it's handy. And so for each campaign that you run, you could have one of these compendiums and especially for homebrew campaigns as you're yeah. creating NPCs along the way. One of the things I always struggled the most with was keeping good notes, you know? Yeah. And I, I built this to make that easier. Um, and this just started as something I had originally built for myself just to make DMing easier for myself. Cause I would forget, Oh, what voice was I speaking in when they met this character the first time? So I, I came up with this form, right? Okay, I'll write it down. Here's the voice they're speaking in. Were they a good guy, bad guy? What quests did they have? All that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then the way I built the book, you can index it there in the table of contents with what page number they're on so that you can always quickly find, oh yeah, where was where was Bartle the Bard? Oh, okay, yeah, he's on page 74. Go back to him. Oh, okay, yes, he spoke in a sort of a drunken dwarven accent. Perfect. Okay, I know how to play that character again when they come back yeah. to him. Yeah, and it's also perfect tools for... Like, I'm great at making Bob the Human. Yeah. <laughs> again and again and again and again. Bob the Human is wearing a different hat. Yep. Bob the Human now has a different different shoot on. Uh, but yeah, this is a tool that would just help me make more diverse, uh, more fairy characters and make the world feel more lifting. Mm -hmm. Well, another person I, who has uh, used it, they said they filled out every page before they started their campaign just so that they would have a group of characters that were ready to go so they could just flip to a page and insert uh, NPC whenever the characters, you know, interacted somebody that they weren't ready for. And both of the books, the Compendium and Assassin's Zero, uh, the DMG to uh, writing great campaigns in any system, both of them got five stars on Amazon, which is just epic, just constant five stars, which is unheard of in any kind <laughs> of book. Uh, so, of course, we can get them on Amazon. Yes. And where else could people find you and find your work and find what you do? Yeah. So, obviously, um, the podcast is probably the easiest place to to hear me talking about this kind of stuff. And you can find that on every platform. Um, Apple Podcasts is the most popular, followed by Spotify and, and Google Podcasts. But it's on all of them. Um, and it is the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology podcast. And that's the ampersand instead of the word and. But yeah. uh, uh, other places, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at um, Dungeons, Dragons, Psychology on Twitter. Um, you can also, or D&D &D Psychology on Twitter, Dungeons, Dragons, Psychology on Instagram. Um, and you can also email me if you just want to chat, if you have any questions, um, if you'd like me to, you know, come on another show or I love being involved in this community so freaking much because yeah. it's so welcoming and it's so much fun just meeting people around the world. Um, and I've met so many freaking cool people like you, you know, like normally oh, I would nice. not. You're too nice to oh, me. <laughs> seriously, though, like I, I'm I'm waking up early in the morning for myself to to chat with people across the other side of the world. It's so cool to do that. And so you can email me at dungeons dragons psychology at gmail.com and i'm happy just to chit chat like i love that i love the interaction of this community yeah and um it is just far too early like it's what 4 a.m for you yep yep <laughs> which is like how are you alive how are you not an undead ghoul at this moment uh coffee coffee lots of coffee <laughs> lots of coffee yeah that, that's how we're going to defeat the ghouls um so we always close out every episode with the Prost questionnaire. Uh, these were then adapted by Bernard Pivot and later by um, James Lipton. And now I present my Son of Father Beholder adaptation <laughs> to yourself. Question one, what is your favorite word? So for a very long time, I have, and I don't even know where this started, but the, a word I absolutely love is scribble. And Scribble. I don't know why. It's just I like the way that it rolls off the tongue. It's just there's something about the the double Bs and the we scribble. Like it just it's a great word. I don't <laughs> it, Yeah, it's almost like Roland Atkinson is saying it. Uh it's like scribble. 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 <laughs> what is your least favorite word? I have like a group of least favorite words, and for me, it's any word that people use incorrectly so much that they then get their definition gets changed and added to the dictionary that upsets the hell out of me it's and the one that immediately comes to mind is the word momentarily which people used to say all the time wrong which they were saying it like oh i'll be back momentarily meaning in a short time well what it was supposed to be was for a short time, but they started saying it so wrong that about a decade ago, they added a second definition to the dictionary, and I had been doing all this railing, like, stop using this word wrong, stop using this word wrong. And then they put it in the dictionary as a new definition, 
and now I can't do that anymore. So <laughs> I hate words like that because I prefer to be able to like use words right. <laughs> I, I love I'm going to use that as just like, I might use that as the cold open now. Just use words right. And then <laughs> no one will have any idea what we're on about. What engages you? People, really. Um, interaction with others and and kind of just trying to understand what's going on in their life and in their mind. I mean, I think that's why I'm so drawn to psychology. It's why I'm so drawn to role-playing games. I just, I'm very fascinated by personal motivation and what makes people happy, what makes them sad. Just, I like to know about, about the experience that others are having. And I think, yeah, like you said, everyone who is in psychology is interested in people, no matter how extroverted or introverted they are. And of course, I could yell on about the difference between them and how it's a complete misnomer and people are using those two words incorrectly as well. <laughs> yeah. um, you've got me riled up, Robert. You've really got me. You got me. <laughs> well, good. I'm going to go on a crusade. <laughs> the palad um, the the paladin of words. Here we go. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to make that. Po- I'm going to make that subclass now. Yes. Because uh, I adore paladin. Uh, paladin of words. There we are. Um, the opposite question what disengages you i think that one's a little harder for me to answer um it's easier to see in the workspace i think um i'm pretty quickly disengaged by by excuses um by people not taking accountability or or putting blame on other people i really try and disengage from people pretty quickly when they start blaming other people for their actions or their mistakes or just being unwilling to sort of see their hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. What sound or noise do you love? Sound or noise do I love? Well, uh, music, obviously. Um, and I, I am a consumer of so many different types of music. Um, but really, I think the sound that I love the most when it comes to music is just a very melodic voice singing by itself. Um, so I really do like all sorts of music where where it is just the vocal highlighted and instruments are sort of muted. I, I think it's amazing what the human instrument can do just all by itself. Yeah, I don't know if you have this show over in the States, but on, on, on in the UK, we've got one called Desert Island Discs where mm, the guests will talk about their... What they'll do is they'll take six albums that they love and they're the albums they're trapped on a desert island with. Mm. Um, are there any that you can never sort of let go? Like if you were trapped on a desert island, you would be like, I have to have this music. Oh, yeah. Um, honestly, f- for me, probably that would have to be like Led Zeppelin number four um, is one of those that I no matter how long it's been, I can still put it on repeat and listen to it over and over and over again. Um, other than that, I think I'm I'm pretty open to a lot of different kinds of music, but that's probably the one that's at my core that that has all the songs on it that sort of had a moment to play in my life and really came into my life where I was really starting to understand and love music. So I think it's just always stuck with me as as nostalgic. That, those albums like just they find a way into your hearts, don't they? And it's just you can't let go. Mm-hmm. The opposite question. What sound or noise do you hate? Hmm. Yeah. So I have one thing that really annoys the hell out of me is the sound of other people typing on a keyboard, especially those ones that have really loud clinky keys. Um, and it's, it doesn't really bother me for short stints, but <laughs> yeah, you hear what I'm doing. I do. <laughs> Well played. <laughs> yeah, short stints aren't so bad, but you know, like when I'm in the office setting and I'm surrounded by other people just typing around me, that noise gets to me. I have to put in the earbuds and just sort of tune that out. Yeah, that is like because it, it can just overload, can't it? It's like you've got typing on the left, typing on the right, typing behind you. If you ring a call center, you've got typing coming through the microphone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't like it. <laughs> exactly. Now, question seven, everyone's favorite. What is your favorite curse word? Man, it's 
on your previous episodes, I keep hearing everyone go back to fuck, and it's <laughs> it's true. I mean, they've written songs about how great of a curse word it is. <laughs> And I wanted to come up with something better, and I've been racking my brain knowing that this question was coming up, trying to come up with a better answer. But there's no fucking better word than that, so <laughs> I don't think there is a better answer. <laughs> yep, yeah, there is. Um, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Uh, well, I think for me, it, it would be clinical psychology, um, mm -hmm. just because that was what I originally wanted to do. If if I hadn't made such a successful career in the restaurant industry, it's what I would probably be pursuing. Um, so I think I, I will attempt it in my own way as a dungeon master and just, yeah. you know, constantly bring therapy to my players. What profession would you not like to do? I don't think I could do um, pretty much any sort of a first responder. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, the way that I could could help people is after the trauma, um, when they're sort of sorting out the mental side of things, but I don't think I could be there. Um, I'm a pretty calm person, but I just don't know if I could remain calm in some of, some of those situations. Yeah. yeah. I've got a friend who is training to be um, a paramedic over here, and at the risk of being patronizing, that's not, that's not my intention, it definitely takes a special kind of person to be a first responder yeah. in any kind of field. Uh, so all respects to Absolutely. any first responders. Um, that they have time to actually listen to the podcast, they're, they're probably super busy, but right. still, I, I hope they, I hope they, if they are, you know, you, you're appreciated. Final question. If you could say only one statement to any one person, what would that statement be? And who would that person be? Yeah, this is another one that I was struggling with because I was trying to decide, do I want to take like the political road on this answer and try and talk some sense into somebody. But then I realized, you know, if I actually were to get the opportunity to like try and talk some sense into like Donald Trump, he definitely wouldn't listen anyways. So it'd probably yeah. be a wasted statement. Um, but I think one of the things I would maybe try and convince people of is, um, is to get to, to wizards of the coast, right? at the beginning of spell plague. And this is, um, this is very nerddom here, but to convince well, them isn't it, spell plague. Yeah. To con yeah. to convince them. Yeah. Forgotten, forgotten realms. Uh, yeah. The world was destroyed through spell plague and they reformed it. But one of the big mistakes that I believe that they made was just the destruction of, of Elminster and of Mistra. And those were all the way from the very beginning of D and D. Those were such, powerful important pieces that played so many parts in great stories and then to yeah. just sort of have them wiped off the map i it it really it offended me to a level that had me actually literally tear a book up um so i would just try to talk them out of that and that just speaks to probably how much of a nerd i am that that's what kind of change i would like to make is in a story <laughs> you know i totally agree with you um i'm a big sympathizer of 4e i i like 4e as a system and mm -hmm. as a concept and magic destroying or, or at least partially destroying the world i would have loved that as its own separate setting mm -hmm. like if you were presenting me a setting straight from the very start that 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 said um the spell weave has just gone completely wrong mistress destroyed we got all of these destroyed cities you've got to somehow try and function in this world that's falling apart i'd be like give me that setting immediately right. so many people have built up stuff in first second third 3.5 yeah that it's like the wizard of the coast just came in and was like nope not anymore and in their previous editions they always had these sort of catastrophes or very big events that happened that went from one setting to the next setting so they had the the time of troubles of course was the previous big one but the great thing at the end of that was the stories that you were still following still stayed there like mm -hmm. yes mistra fell but a new mistra rose up and took her place elminster still had his whole you know, he had a whole new cycle to go through. And it, I think it was just, it was just heartbreaking for me to see Mr. Go away and Elminster go mad and crazy and then eventually die. Like all of that was just like, 
but why? It didn't, none of that needed to happen. Yeah. yeah, and I think we could easily now just segue into a whole episode talking about different settings and sort of the, the balancing act that companies need to play, but then I realized I'll just add on another hour to this <laughs> podcast, which I'm totally cool with doing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but yeah, we do have to end our episodes at some point, just like we have to end our campaigns sometimes, which yep. is always, always sad. Uh, but just remind us, where can we find you online? Yeah. Like I said, just check out the podcast. Any, any podcast platform will work. The Dungeons, Dragons and Psychology podcast. Check me out on Instagram. Check me out on Twitter. Um, email me at dungeonsdragonspsychology at gmail.com happy to chat with you and uh, collaborate or whatever you want just look me up you'll find me and you can find this show as well on tiktok um, at meets interesting people on instagram at tom underscore meets underscore interesting underscore people uh, on twitter at tom meets people and of course you can also email us uh, tom meets interesting people at gmail.com you have just listened to an episode of Tom Meets Interesting People. If you'd enjoyed the show and would like to take part, or you know somebody who would make a great guest, please email me at tommeetsinterestingpeople at gmail.com and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Guests may provide audio content that helps to demonstrate their work. Guests have given permission for this work to be played through the use of a release form that they have signed. It is the understanding of this podcast that the material that they provide does not infringe on the copyright of others. All other rights reserved. Copyright 2022.